0: Join me out of expectation to meet our Lord Jesus Christ in His Word and turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 42. If you don't happen to have a Bible uh, with you this morning, you can use one of the chairback Bibles that should be in front of you and turn to page 602. You'll find uh, this morning's text. If you've been with us in recent weeks, you know that for the last 12 months, almost exactly, we have been slowly and steadily working our way through Luke's gospel in the New Testament. We've made it all the way through the first 17 chapters over the last 12 months. And what we're going to do for the next four weeks here at Redeemer as we come into this Advent season is press the pause button on Luke's gospel as we want to give our attention to the four servant songs In the book of Isaiah, songs that have been long celebrated as some of the most majestic passages, prophetic passages of our Lord Jesus Christ depicting the Messiah that was to come, the Savior that God's people were looking for. And what we're going to pay attention to this morning is the first servant song, which is found in Isaiah 42 verses 1 through 9. So what I want to do is read the passage for us and then pray once again that God would bless our study of His Word and then we will begin. So let us hear now for God is indeed speaking to us of His Son Jesus Christ through His Word. Behold my servant whom I uphold my chosen in whom my soul delights I have put my spirit upon him The Lord who created the heavens and stretched them out. Who spread out the earth and what comes from it. Who gives breath to the people on it. And spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people. A light for the nations. To open the eyes that are blind. To bring out the prisoners from the dungeon. From the prison, those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and the new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. And Redeemer Church, what do we know about God's word? The grass withers and the flowers fall. But the word of the Lord stands forever. Let us pray together. Father, we bow before you now, thanking you that Jesus Christ is indeed everlasting, that he is full of splendor, majesty, and power. And so we pray as we come to such a striking portrait of his grace towards us that you would help us this morning to receive your word as we should with hearts of meekness and faithfulness for me to preach as your word says I must boldly and clearly, listening attentively, knowing that we stand on the precipice of eternity for not a single one of us is promised tomorrow. So give us ears to hear, we pray, by the Spirit, and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. In October of 1863, the Civil War in our country was raging, and President Abraham Lincoln sent his Secretary of War, Edwin Stanton, off to Indianapolis to meet with a general named Ulysses S. Grant. Stanton and Grant had never met before. Grant's name was increasingly famous in the country, but few people actually knew what his face looked like. And So when Stanton arrived at the Indianapolis train station, and the General staff disembarked from the train, Stanton promptly walked right by the general up to one of his staff officers, grabbed his hand firmly, started shaking it vigorously saying, how are you General Grant? I knew what you looked like from your pictures. And it was a somewhat odd case of mistaken identity or we may dare say of assumed identity and the reason I tell you that is become, we, become, or we are coming to a text today that we want to see the Lord Jesus Christ in. But throughout the centuries and even recent decades, many people have said to see Christ in this passage is to go about a case of mistaken identity. Is this passage that we are looking at today, this first servant song, actually speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ or is it speaking of someone else? One commentator would say of this passage that the identity of the servant mentioned in verse 1 has stirred up no small amount of controversy. And the reason for the controversy is mostly because up until this point in the book of Isaiah there have already been numerous people mentioned as God's servants. So the nation of Israel has been said to be the Lord's servant. Isaiah himself is said to be the Lord's servant. You have other people like Eliakim and King Hezekiah and even a king named Cyrus is going to be called the Lord's servant. And so when the Lord speaks of his servant in verse 1, who is he actually talking about? And we're wanting to say this morning that we stand on solid, sound, scriptural ground to say that it is speaking of none other than the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And so I want to kind of settle this issue right from the outset before we jump into the text to make sure that we have unified confidence that we can speak of Jesus Christ in this passage. And to do that, swiftly, just turn to Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12, first book in the New Testament. If you give your eyes attention to verse 15, uh, what you would find is Jesus has just healed a man of a withered hand. Verse 14 tells us the Pharisees are out to destroy him. So look at verse 15 through 17. Jesus is aware of the Pharisees' plan to destroy him. So aware of this, he withdrew from where he was, and many followed him, and Jesus healed them all and ordered them not to make him known. Pay attention to verse 17. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah then scan your eyes through verses 18 through 21. Do you see what he's quoting? Isaiah 42, the text from which we just read and are giving our attention to this morning. So we are on sound, solid scriptural ground to say that this is speaking of and speaking to none other than the Lord Jesus Christ himself. It's the first servant song that takes for its theme God's servant for the burdened. It's wanting to paint a picture of the Messiah to come God's son who would be a savior for broken and burdened people. So you might be in here this morning and feel as though in your life situation you are hanging by something of an emotional thread that just one more discouragement or one more disappointment will be strong enough to knock you over. Or maybe it's as though you wonder how Jesus will think about your doubts regarding who he is and what he has done. Or you may be even in here and you're not sure that you would call yourself a Christian and you see all the evil, the pain, the suffering that saturates our world and wonder if God plans to do anything about it. Or maybe, can he even do anything about it? And this is a text that's going to address those issues among a myriad of others as God presents to us his servant, who's going to be a savior for burdened people. Like you and me. So if you look down at the text again, the first five, nine verses of Isaiah 42, you'll see the first is verses one through four. There God is speaking of his servant. And then there's a shift in verse five through nine that God speaks to his servant. So what we want to do this morning is just walk through the text under two simple headings. God's presentation of his servant. That's verses one through four. And then, secondly, God's confirmation to his servant in verses 5 through 9. But before we get there, I do want to make sure we are aware of where we are in the story of Isaiah. For maybe you've read it in your own devotional time and realized that this is a beautiful book. But it often can be bewildering as well, this huge testimony of God's grace in 66 chapters in this old major prophet. So Isaiah's name means the Lord is salvation. And that's actually a fair summary of the book as a whole. It's announcing to that original audience and us even today that God plans to bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And Isaiah's ministry, his prophetic ministry, it was quite long. It was at least 40 years long. And I think it may have even been as long as 60 years that he was functioning as a prophet among God's people. And we know that because there's this famous story in Isaiah chapter 6 where he says, in the year that King Uzziah died, he saw this great vision of heaven. Well, we know that that was 740 B.C. that Uzziah died. Then if you fast forward in Isaiah's story to chapters 36 through 39, there's this kind of interaction he has with the King Hezekiah. And him dealing with this assault by the Syrian king and his army upon Jerusalem. And we know that happened in 701 B.C. So between chapter 6 and chapters 36 through 39, there's basically 40 years that have elapsed. And, Many scholars would maybe add another 20 years to Isaiah's prophetic ministry. However long it was, he lived through turbulent times among God's people. He would have seen the northern kingdom of Israel carted off to exile by Assyria in 722 B.C. The first 39 chapters of Isaiah we might call the book of conviction, for in many ways it's speaking to God's people, warning them that if they don't repent of their idolatry, of their sin, of their disobedience. He too is gonna cart off the southern kingdom of Judah to exile, but there's a pronounced shift in chapter 40. You move from the book of conviction to the book of comfort. You can even turn back to the first verse of Isaiah 40 and the words are, comfort my people. And there's all of these promises that now come to God's people who are said to be in exile, promises of of a new exodus, promises of a new redemption, And so we pick up the story in Isaiah right after that book of comfort begins, as it's speaking to a people about the new exodus that's on the way from exile, and we want to pay attention first to God's presentation of his servant. So kids, look at verse 1, and what's the first word in verse 1? Behold. Behold. About 10 days ago our family was driving down to Bryan College Station to visit my parents for Thanksgiving and as often happens you know, when you have so many young kids that are seated way back in the van, you'll see some things outside the window that are quite striking and interesting and you presume that many of the children aren't looking at them, so Emily and I might you know, shout out from the front seat, hey look out your window, because there was something worthy of, of their attention. And when God, speaking through his prophet Isaiah, says, behold, it's as though he's taking our face and saying, pay attention. Look at what I am talking about. And even this word behold shows up all over the book of Isaiah. 88 times it shows up in this book. It shows up five times alone in chapter 41. Look at the two most recent occasions of behold. Look back at chapter 41, verse 24. If you scan your eyes through verse 24 of chapter 41, you'll see that God says, idols, behold, idols are nothing. So he wants to emphasize the uselessness and the worthlessness of idols. Skip down to verse 29, which is the verse right before our servant song. He says, behold, they, idols and idolaters, are all a delusion. And then right in verse one of our text, behold, my servant. It's as though in the sweep of Isaiah what God is saying is, my servant is the answer to the human problem of idolatry. So what do we need to know about God's presentation of his servant? What does he mean to present to us about this servant's identity? I think we can mention four things. Four things from this first stanza. First, the father's pleasure. The father's pleasure. Look at how verse 1 continues. Behold, my servant... Whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. Christ Jesus, then, according to this passage, is the chosen one of God. He is the elect one of God. You can think of times in the New Testament, can't you, if you're familiar with the gospel stories, when this same kind of language is used. In the baptism of Jesus in Matthew chapter 3, you remember, God speaks, the Father speaks from heaven, rends open the skies, and what does he say? This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Fast forward in the life of Jesus to the Mount of Transfiguration, Matthew chapter 17. Three disciples are with him. What do they hear from heaven? This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. He has the Father's pleasure. He delights the Father's soul. This is who this servant is going to be, but he not just only has the Father's pleasure, he also has the Spirit's power. Look at how verse one continues. I have put my Spirit upon him. Think back to Jesus' baptism also. Not only do the heavens break open as the Father says, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased, but also falls upon Jesus. In the form of the dove, the Spirit rests upon Jesus Christ. That is baptism, empowering him energizing him for his mission. And so the verse also says that he's going to uphold this servant of the Lord. The language there is more literally painting a picture of to grip fast. Uh, sometime last year during the summer, this was probably now about 18 months ago, our family was in a long road trip kind of up to Michigan and slowly making our way back to Texas and we detoured back to Texas by way of Uh, Smoky Mountains in eastern Tennessee and one morning we took our children out for a hike and we tried to pick a trail that would be a challenge to them but exciting to them and it was one of those trails that you may have walked along before one side what seems to always accompany you is some kind of a cliff you know it's not a cliff that will lead to your death but it's a cliff that should you fall down it some injury might come from it and so as we're walking along you know with our Five children at the time, this trail with the cliff on the side, often, you know, we were holding on to one of the younger kids' hands, holding fast a grip that they might not fall or fail. And what Isaiah is telling us is that the father holds fast his son by his spirit. And think about how it works out in the life of Jesus, we know from the gospel accounts. Why is it when King Herod, is killing all the babies in and around Bethlehem, that Jesus is able to make it safely out to Egypt. Because the Father holds his Son by his Spirit. Why is it when the Spirit leads Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil, that our Savior is able to faithfully reject all of the devil's temptations, to be faithful where the nation of Israel fell short? Why is he able to do that? The Father is holding his Son by his Spirit. Or something of a more enigmatic occurrence we've looked at already in our study of Luke. Jesus shows up one day in his hometown of Nazareth to begin his earthly ministry. He sits down in the synagogue, or actually stands up in the synagogue, and takes the scroll of Isaiah, gets to, in our Bibles, Isaiah 61, and reads it. Which many scholars actually call the fifth servant song. And he reads it and he says, today this passage has been fulfilled in your hearing. And he enrages all of his hearers, his hometown friends and family members, those acquaintances that he grew up with. They take him out to a cliff near the city intending to throw him off the cliff unto his death. But you remember what happens to Jesus? He just kind of mysteriously disappears through the crowd and steals away from death. Why? Because the father holds his son by his spirit. He will not let him fall or fail in his mission. And if you're in Christ today and you have actually repented of your sin and turned from him, see from just these first two points in verse one, the Father is pleased in you, that you too have his spirit. For by faith you have been united to Christ, who has the Father's pleasure and has the Spirit's power. But what about the servant himself? What is exactly he going to do? Look at the servant's purpose. So look at verses 1, verse 3, and verse 4. Scan your eyes through it. See if you can find one word that's repeated in each one of those verses. Students, who see it? At the end of verse 1, my servant will bring forth justice to the nations. At the end of verse 3, he will faithfully bring forth justice. And in the middle of verse 4, he will establish justice in the earth. What's the servant coming to do? Establish justice to the ends of the earth. So kids, what exactly is justice? Maybe it's a word you've heard of before. How would you explain justice to a friend that wanted to know what it actually means? You know, we might often use a word like fairness. It's just fair. Or if you add a little bit to it, we might say something like it's legal correctness. But in Isaiah's mind, especially as Yahweh speaks through Isaiah... The idea of justice is much more all-encompassing than just mere fairness. It's a gigantic mission that the servant has received to establish God's rule to the end of the earth, to make all things right, that all of our dreams for a better life, all of our dreams for a better world, all of our hopes for the world being made right, rests on the shoulders of this servant. And let me see if I can paint a picture of what God is doing through the Lord Jesus Christ by way of a... A simple analogy. Say you have a valuable painting at home. And you come home one day and discover that someone's stolen the painting. So, you know, you call the police department and say, someone stole my painting, can you please bring justice back to my house? So they assign some sort of officer or detective to find the painting, and lo and behold, a few days later, maybe it's a few weeks later, you get a phone call or a knock on the door, and the case officer says, good news, justice has been done. We've caught the criminal, the art thief who stole your painting. And you might say, great, wonderful, but where's the painting? And then he says, well, good news, we've established justice, it's been done, we've caught the criminal. And you say, but where's the painting? Because it's just a half picture of true justice, isn't it? That the law might be able to punish, the law might be able to correct or restrain, but the law can't restore. The law can't transform. What is needed is a just servant king to come and establish God's justice to the ends of the earth. And that's what this servant savior is coming to do. It's his purpose. So, how is he going to go about it? Is the next question. Well, notice the servant's plan in verses two through three he will not cry aloud or lift up his voice, or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. How's he going to do it? What you need to see is, he's going to do it in a way that's totally contrary to anything the world would have expected from the one that's going to bring justice to the farthest island in the world. How's he going to do it? Verse tells us he's not going to lift up his voice. He's not going to establish a platform for himself. He's not going to call attention to his life and ministry. He's just going to go about it with all humility. And even these two pictures in verse 3, he's not going to break a bruised reed. He's not going to blow out a faintly burning wick. It's a picture of meekness. It's a picture of humility and kindness. That's how he plans to go about establishing his purpose. You know, there's this poem in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe that C.S. Lewis recorded. If you know the story, kids, you know in the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, the great villainess is the white witch of Narnia. She's decreed that, of course, it's always winter, but never Christmas. And so the Narnians, about halfway through the story, they hear these rumblings of the great Lion King Aslan. Hey, he's going to return. He's going to rescue the Narnians. He's going to restore Narnia to its rightful, created place. And so they have this little poem that they encourage one another with for what Aslan is coming to do, and here's what it says, wrong will be right when Aslan comes in sight. At the sound of his roar, sorrows will be no more. When he bears his teeth, winter shall meet its death, and when he shakes his mane, we shall have spring again. And we, of course, know that Jesus Christ also is called the Lion of Judah. But in this portrait of the Savior, what we have is truth, that a tabby cat's teeth are sharper than this king's teeth, that its meow is deeper than the growl of this Savior. So meek, mild, and humble is this king. Of course, there's a time we know when he returns, the second time, that a sort of judgment's going to come from his mouth. But speaking of his first coming, his incarnation that we observe this Advent season, it's a mission of meekness. So maybe you're in here this morning and you're wondering, how does does the Lord Jesus Christ think of me in my struggles? Or with my burdens, my doubts, my failings, my fears? You know, kids, you might think of Jesus as something that's looking at you with a sneer. Or maybe it's just a face and a countenance full of disappointment and discouragement. That's not the picture that the Bible says is true. He looks at you with eyes of love, grace, mercy. Meekness, humility, kindness, and compassion. He's not going to take that broken reed and lift it up with its hand and kind of sway it about violently so that it breaks. He takes it with both hands and holds it carefully and gently to restore it. He's not going to take the faintly burning wick and just toss it about as well so that it loses its flame. No, he's going to take his hands and he's going to cup it and care for it and make sure that it's once again fanned into full energy. This is his plan. This is the servant for the broken. This is the servant for the burdened. He has the Father's pleasure. He has the Spirit's power. He has a purpose for universal justice. And he has a plan to execute it, to establish it with profound meekness. That's God's presentation of his servant. But what about his confirmation to his servant? Because you think about it. Jesus in his humanity probably had the book of Isaiah memorized, and he's reading these stories, these these prophecies of old in his youth, and he's becoming aware that this is truth about him. We're actually gonna get there in the third servant song in Isaiah 50. And he's understanding it's his mission to execute justice to the ends of the earth. It's a, it's a heavy burden, it's a heavy responsibility, it's a massive weight on his shoulders. How is he going to be able to do it? And so what God does now, in essence, is speak directly to his son, to his servant and confirms what he promises. In other words, he confirms the servant's success. So first look at verse five. Uh, We're told, thus says God, the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. And so students, what you need to think about verse five is, is God is establishing his key credential why he has the right to appoint his own servant to execute justice. What gives you the right to do this? And what does he say? I'm the sovereign creator of all things. Everything you see is because I brought it about. Everything that moves is because I give it life and spirit. I have the right to establish my own servant, to bring about my eternal plans of justice and righteousness. So kids, what you want to look at is verse 6. What you have in verse 6 is this divine pronoun, I. So the word I is repeated four times. And in that fourfold repetition, you get Yahweh's fourfold confirmation to his servant. So first notice, he confirms his character. Verse 6 says, I am the Lord. I am Yahweh. I am the sovereign ruler, creator, sustainer. I am God. I have the right to speak this way. Secondly, notice his calling. He says, I have called you in righteousness. It's not as though it's just a self-centered notion to appoint his son to bring justice to the world. It's a matter of righteousness. It's at the right time, in the right manner, with the right ambition, with the right plan for the goodness of God's creation. And thirdly, you need to see again God's care. Look at his care as the verse continues. I will take you by the hand and keep you. You know, every parent understands this, I'm sure, as we even mentioned in verse 1. So the father is promising his spirit to his son, his servant, to take him by the hand, to make sure he doesn't fall, to make sure he doesn't fail in this mission of justice for the burden. But I want to emphasize the fourth one, his covenant. Look at the verse as it ends. I will give you, my servant, as a covenant for the people. If you have grown up in Presbyterian churches or maybe some other Reformed denomination, you are probably aware of the fact that much of our theological heritage is interwoven and inextricably linked to what we call covenant theology. That our understanding of God's unfolding revelation of redemption from Genesis to Revelation is all about God relating to his people through a covenant what we call the covenant of grace, and that covenant grace is poured out through the Abrahamic covenant, Noahic covenant, Mosaic covenant, Davidic covenant, New covenant, and we're rightly emphasizing all those things, but we're going to go wrong if we don't understand at a most foundational level what Isaiah 42, 6 tells us, that Christ is the covenant, that God has given him as a covenant, as a sure relationship, For his people. So, why is it that 2 Corinthians, Paul can say that all the promises, covenant promises of God, find their yes and amen in Jesus Christ? He's the covenant. Why, by faith, are we made Abraham's children? Because we're united to Christ, who is the covenant. He's just not the foundation of the covenant and the fulfillment of the covenant. He himself is the covenant. Who's going to do what? Look at how verse 6 continues. He is going to bring a light for the nations. You know, maybe you have been to a tree lighting in recent weeks. You know, these things that happen in local cities all throughout our country. You know, a massive tree is set up in a city center and it's all dark and then it's some kind of majestic moment. The whole thing is lit up and you just notice everyone's face as, as the tree is lit up. There's joy, there's gladness, there's delight as... The tree is lit. And what Isaiah is telling us is that kind of joy at seeing the light? It's, it's but a pinprick of joy compared to the dawning of the Son of Righteousness that is the Servant Savior, Jesus Christ. He will be a light for the nations to extinguish all darkness. Because what is he going to do exactly in his mission of justice? Look at verse 7. He's going to open the eyes of those that are blind, bring out the prisoners from the dungeon. And from the prison, those who sit in darkness. This is his mission of justice. And if you're in here this morning and you're not a Christian, I hope you would give attention to verse 7. The Bible says that whether you realize it or not, you're blind to spiritual things. You know, you might be able to see things in the world, look out the windows today and see the beautiful day that awaits you outside this worship service. But the Bible says you're blind to the truth of Jesus Christ. Not only that, you're not just blind in darkness, you're chained in dungeons of sin and transgression and disobedience and unbelief. And such chains of disobedience means death. Such blindedness to the light means death, the Bible says. But the good news of this servant, Savior, is that he came in the words of John 1, as the light of the world. And in him that light was the life of men. And how is he going to restore justice? By taking God's justice into his very being. For he lived perfectly, didn't he? Never sinned, never failed. He went to the cross of Calvary as a spotless, sinless, sacrificial lamb. And yet he bore the full burden of God's justice against sinners. He who knew no sin was made to be sin. To suffer the justice due sin that people bound in dungeons. People blinded by darkness might be set free and see the light and become the righteousness of God in this servant King, Jesus Christ. And so if you turn from your sin and trust in him, this is what will happen to you today, this fullness of freedom, this finality of forgiveness, set free from the dungeons, open finally your eyes to the light of Jesus Christ, able to sing with that great old hymn, my chains fell off, my heart was free, I rose, went forth, followed thee. God is confirming to his servant that his mission will be successful. Now, there's this moment in Tolkien's Return of the King. Frodo and Samwise Gamgee, these two courageous little hobbits, you know they finally have fulfilled their mission to destroy this ring of power. And they've thrown it into the fires of Mount Doom. Sorry if I've spoiled the story for you, but that is how it ends. And because of their difficult work, you know, it's been a long, arduous journey through Middle-earth, they basically just fall into a a coma of sorts. Uh, Unconscious sleep, rescued by eagles, taken off to a land of safety. And sometime later, Sam wakes up. And he sees, sitting at his bed, Gandalf, this great wizard whom Sam thought was dead. And when he gets over his initial shock that Gandalf himself is actually alive, he begins to recollect all of this evil and all of this misery And all of this difficulty that has filled Middle Earth in recent years. And he looks at Gandalf and says, Gandalf, are all the sad things going to become untrue? And throughout the history of humanity, that has been a question that people have asked. And are asking, are all the sad things going to become untrue? And in our text today, God, Yahweh himself, says, yes, they are. Why? Because I am sending my servant to undo all of the injustice in the world. Have you held him with your eyes by faith? So as we begin to close, what I want to do is just bring out a couple of responses that we find in our passage to this servant Savior. If we're to rightly, with faith and repentance, hear the servant's song, how ought we to rightly respond to it? So just a couple of things from the text and then we will be done. First of all, hear the servant song and welcome the hurting. And welcome the hurting. Uh, there's something going on in Isaiah 41 and 42 that we're meant to see the stunning reversal of God's mission of power in his son. Flip back to chapter 41, verse 25, maybe just one page back. You'll see there a prophecy of a king named Cyrus, this pagan Persian king that Yahweh is going to use to bring his people out of exile. You can read of that story maybe later on today in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah in the Old Testament. And notice though what he says about how Cyrus' mission is going to go. Verse 25, I stirred up one from the north and he has come from the rising of the sun. He shall call upon my name. He shall what? Trample on rulers as on mortar, as the potter treads on clay. Yet here is my servant. Verse three who will not break a bruised reed, who will not quench a burning wick. It's it's meant to be a totally opposite portrait of true power. This is a servant king who welcomes the hurting. It's why even in his reflections on this passage, it's a wonderful book, you can run down and read the Puritan Richard Sibbs in his book, The Bruised Reed, says, as a mother is tenderest towards the most diseased and weakest child, so does Christ, most mercifully and kind to the weakest. He inclines himself to the lowliest. He inclines himself to the neediest. I wonder if your life is increasingly marked by meekness and humility, kindness and compassion, gentleness that mirrors this portrait of the king. You know, students, maybe something you can resolve to learn In 2019, should the Lord continue to tarry and give you another 12 months to grow in Christ? Is talk with your parents or a church leader about it. Is to learn the simple yet vital lesson early on. That Christ-centered meekness is not weakness. It's actually God's intended way of strength. And and let me speak even directly to church leaders. Not just ordained officers, but those of you who are desiring to serve the church and powerful, noticeable public ways. Maybe in parents, it's appropriate application too. As you read through the New Testament, what you continually find in the Gospels is a portrait of Jesus Christ that is saturated with meekness. As you read through the apostolic authors, you continually find a portrait of church leaders saturated with gentleness. And a text in mind I have in particular, 2 Timothy 2, verse 24 and 25. Could it just be when Paul is giving these, these striking words to how church leaders should be? He might just have Isaiah 42 in mind, because what does he say? The Lord's servant must be kind to everyone, correcting his opponents with gentleness. Churches do not need, the world does not need more critics, sarcastic curmudgeons, people prone to disagree and divide. What it needs are men and women, even covenant children, who are meek and mild like their Savior walking in humility. We didn't need a browbeater, we didn't need a lecturer of sternness. We needed what? A merciful king who welcomes the hurting. Hear the servant song and welcome the hurting. Secondly, hear the servant song and warn against idolatry. That's the context of this passage. You know, we may be more sophisticated in the 21st century in our idolatry. You know, we may not have carved idols awaiting us on our mantles at home when we return this afternoon, but we have idols nonetheless things in the world that we bow before, finding ultimate joy, satisfaction, peace, pleasure, hope, and trust in. But look at the warning of verse 8. I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. So this servant's mission of justice is good news if you cling to him, but it is terrifying news if you continue to reject him, because that justice will fall upon you because you have stolen the glory that belongs to this king alone. So you're meant to hear the warning against idolatry. Thirdly and finally, hear the servant's song and wait for his coming. Wait for his coming. You see that at the end of verse four. The coastlands are said to wait for his law. This picture of the ends of the earth, they're not waiting for Moses' law. They're not waiting for Israel's instruction. They're not waiting for edicts and decrees from some sort of earthly emperor. They're waiting for the word of the servant. I wonder how eagerly you wait, the covenant word of this covenant servant. But of course, you know, this prophecy is given of a servant to come, and notice the timeline in Israel's history 700 years before God's going to bring it to pass. This first coming of Jesus Christ, 700 years on from this moment. We stand what? 2,000 years on awaiting the fulfillment of these promises as Christ comes again in his second advent, his second coming. So why should we continue to trust and hope in God's word of promise when it seems that he keeps delaying? Well, look at verse 9. We end with where we began that same word. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. These former things he has in mind here are the things in the book of conviction at the beginning of Isaiah, this, this announcement that should you not repent of your sins, you're going into exile. And he's saying, you went into exile. You can trust my word. Those four things I prophesied about came to pass. But pay attention now to what I'm saying is on the way. The coming of a servant. And you're waiting for him. And you can continue waiting in hope and faith. Because as surely as those things came to pass, surely this thing will come to pass which is a servant for the burdened, who will bring justice to the ends of the earth. Let us pray together. Father, we do thank you for your grace and mercy towards us in Jesus Christ, that we who need a merciful savior, a servant king, have found him in your son Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray for more meekness. We pray for more humility. We pray for an increased passion for your justice to go to the ends of the earth, that your covenant promises might come to pass. So help us to wait in faith. Help us to hope in longing as we long for his second coming, a second advent of our servant Savior. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.